the show for curious people who never stop asking questions and let's start off light. America has one of the highest poverty rates of any rich country. We also have among the highest rates for childhood poverty. The World Economic Forum found that almost 20% of Americans below the age of 15 were food insecure. And no, that doesn't mean they need a confidence boost about which fork to use from Anthony from Queer Eye, all right? It means they go hungry often. Think about that. One in five American children goes hungry on the regular. In an elementary school of 50 kids, because let's be honest, that's how many kids we're jamming into a class nowadays, 10 of those kids are not getting the nutrition they need to be healthy or to even focus in class. That is not something we should be okay with. But think about it. When was the last time you ever heard anyone bring it up? It's a reality we almost never face. And the reason for that is, in typical can-do American fashion, we have built elaborate rationales to avoid addressing the issue of poverty head on. In America, we believe that all we need to do better than those who came before us is a little bit of gumption, grit, stick to and never quitification. And that's a wonderful thought, not only because it makes you the hero of your very own Shark Tank segment, but because it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. If it doesn't work, it doesn't mean the theory's wrong, it just means you did didn't try hard enough, you lazy piece of shit. The dark side of the myth of American mobility is the conclusion that if you're poor, it's your fault. You slacked off and took too many handouts. You're a hillbilly in need of an elegy. You didn't learn to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Well, guess what? Have you ever tried pulling yourself up by your bootstraps? Go ahead, give it a shot. I'll wait. It doesn't work. All that happens is you stretch out your nice boots. Come on, don't treat your footwear that way. Well, guess what? That's what the phrase originally meant. When it was first coined in the 19th century, it specifically referred to an absurd and unfeasible attempt to better your own situation. As in, that's more useless than trying to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. It was only decades later that we flipped the meaning. So consider this. When we tell the poor to pull themselves up by their bootstraps, we are literally telling them to do something that's impossible. All the thinking about poverty as some kind of moral failing accomplishes is that it allows those with means to tisk-tisk those beneath them. It doesn't help us address the problem. Hell, it doesn't even help us understand it. But thankfully, we're not limited to this crappy way of talking about poverty because there is new research and writing coming out that's articulating the reality in much greater resolution. What we're realizing from this growing body of research is that poverty is not a moral or economic condition. It's a public health crisis. In the words of UCSF Dr. Tom Boyce, socioeconomic status is the most powerful predictor of disease, disorder, injury, and mortality that we have. Let that sink in. Poverty is so harmful to us as humans that it's almost literally a disease, a physical one. But that means, like many diseases, it can be treated. The New York Times recently published an overview of the effects of an experimental miracle cure called the $15 minimum wage. Quote, studies have linked higher minimum wages to decreases in low birth weight babies, lower rates of teen alcohol consumption, and declines in teen births. A $15 minimum wage is an antidepressant. It's a sleep aid, a diet, a stress reliever. It's a contraceptive preventing teenage pregnancy. It prevents premature death, and it shields children from neglect. 
That is some powerful stuff. Well, those words were written by Matthew Desmond, and he is our guest today. And I am totally honored to have him because he is one of the foremost voices and experts today on the nature and reality of American poverty. He won a Pulitzer in 2017 for his book, Evicted. I just read it this year, and it was one of the most stunning books I have read in a long time. It makes an incredibly stark case about the causes and effects of housing insecurity and poverty in our society, and it does it while reading as grippingly as the best-written novel you have ever read. I really, really recommend it. It's an incredible book. He's also a professor of sociology at Princeton and the recipient of a MacArthur Fellowship, which means he's pretty much won the scholastic equivalent of an EGOT. So I am totally thrilled to have him on the show. Please welcome Matthew Desmond. Matthew, thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate you being here. It's great to be here. So, uh, look, I read your book Evicted in the last year. It uh, completely knocked my socks off. Um, Both the thesis of the book um, and the way you went about the reporting. Um, If I can just set you up to expand it on a little bit, the the thesis of the book is that eviction as a social problem is a completely – unexamined issue in American life that's that's almost an epidemic that is sort of stifling lives around the country, correct? Right, right. Yeah, I mean, we're in the middle of this huge housing crisis. You know, it's a housing crisis like the country hasn't seen in in years and years. You know, most poor renting families today spend over half of their income on housing. Yeah. And we've moved from a place, right, where eviction used to be strange and rare and people used to come out of their homes to watch it. Uh, to a place where eviction is incredibly commonplace. And the book kind of centers on Milwaukee and kind of on the the human wreckage of the affordable housing crisis, families getting evicted and landlords doing the work. Yeah, and I hadn't realized that about eviction specifically. I mean, on our show, Adam Ruins Everything, we did an episode about housing. I've Mm -hmm. done a lot of work on housing issues elsewhere uh, in in my work. Uh, But Eviction specifically as an action that's taken was not something that had that had crossed my radar. Um, right. And the specter of that as a form of housing. Ins- I mean, housing insecurity is is one thing. Hey, you're paying too much for housing and your and your housing sucks. But then if you're always living at risk of suddenly being kicked out uh, and uh, having to find a new place to live and finding a new place to live being so difficult, that is such an additional burden that is placed on. A, a large number of people I had no idea about. Right. And if you look at evictions, instead of looking at rents or rising housing costs, you kind of see the housing crisis in a totally different light. So a lot of times we hear about New York and San Francisco and LA and Seattle. And, you know, the story is it's really expensive to live in these cities. And it is. But if you look at evictions, some of the cities that have the highest evictions are not those places. There are places right. like Richmond, Virginia, you know, Tulsa, Oklahoma, Albuquerque. Who's talking about Tulsa and Albuquerque when it comes to the housing crisis? We absolutely should be talking about those places. So I think it's a new way of looking at the problem. And it's a new way of looking at like how acute it is, you know, by our estimates, about 3.7 million homes in 2016 received an eviction filing uh, that year. That's an incredible amount of instability. That's about one in, uh, it's about, uh, there's about seven filings every minute in America. That's what wow. And it's true. That's so divorced from our normal, you know, I talk about the housing crisis a lot. You know, I'll talk about it on Twitter um, and I live in Los Angeles. And so I'll, you know, I'll retweet something from the LA times, you know, and say, Hey, this is evidence right. of some new horrifying statistic I read. And someone right. will say, Oh, that's just in California uh, because <laughs> California construction prices are crazy and da da da. California is a special case. And what people right. don't realize is this is, this is everywhere in the country. 
That's right. I'm so amazed how confident people are on Twitter about what's driving the housing crisis. You know, I've been <laughs> studying this thing for about a decade, and there are still these basic questions that I don't know the answer to. And so, um, you know, it's like, you know, there are two really complicated markets in America, the healthcare market and the housing market. But all the time you hear really overstating generalizations about what's driving uh, rinse up. You know, they'll say, oh, it's just a lack of supply. You know, if we just need to build more homes. Yeah. Well, in a place like L.A. and in San Francisco, that makes a lot of sense. But you go to the middle of the country and you see cities with double-digit vacancy rates, and they've still experienced a huge rise in housing costs. So I think there's a lot of mysteries out there what's, what's driving this kind of really acute problem. So I, I want to talk about the book specifically because so much of the reporting that you read on this is the type that I mentioned a second ago about, you know, hey, the L.A. Times says, you know, uh, you know, half of people in the city are spending this amount of uh, their money on housing. The, the numbers yeah. are really bad. Yeah. Uh, your book is specifically really intimate on the ground reporting with a, a small number of families. And it reads uh, it's one of those books where 50 pages into it, I was like, hold on a second, this is nonfiction, right? Like this is so, it's the, it's so, uh, the narrative is, uh, so strong and moving and your, uh, writing is so intimate and, uh, well-expressed that it really sort of, uh, crosses over what we normally expect from a nonfiction work. And so before we get to the topic of the book, one of the things that fascinated me about it so much was how you wrote it. Could you just describe that for us a bit? So I started because I wanted to try to write a poverty book that wasn't about poor people. And, you know, we had all these uh, accounts of uh, poor places, you know, Southside Chicago or Appalachia, and all these accounts of uh, certain groups of people. You know, you pick up a book about homeless men or single moms. And, you know, I learned a lot from those books. You know, I'm indebted to those books. But they were leaving something out, and those something, that something was tension. Other people, you know, and they kind of represented low-income folks like they lived in isolation from the rest of us. And so I, I wanted like a way to write about poverty and deprivation in America, but bring in a lot of different people. Mm. And I thought, oh, eviction does that. You know, if you write about eviction, you write about the landlords and the tenants. Um, you write about the sheriff and the social worker and the pastor, and a lot of people can be in that story. And so that's how I got into it. And so I started this work in 2008 um, and moved into a trailer park in Milwaukee. And I moved to Milwaukee and I was like, okay, how do I meet folks that are getting evicted? And I opened the paper one day, and there was a story about a landlord who had so many code violations that he was going to get his license revoked, causing a mass eviction. So I drove down, and I said, uh, you know, could I rent one of your trailers? He was mm -hmm. like, absolutely. And so that's how it started. And so uh, Tobin, the landlord in the book in the trailer park, was my landlord. And then I – so I lived in his mobile home park for about five months, and then I moved into a rooming house on the north side of the city, which is Milwaukee's inner city. And I lived there for about 10 months. And just from those two places, you know, met families getting evicted and went everywhere with them and met landlords doing the evicting and tried to write about them just as close as, as I did with the tenants. And so that's kind of that's kind of how it started. Right. And because you do that, you give a very round portrait of the place that they have in the structure of housing in America and the pressures that they're under that cause them to place pressure on their tenants. Right. And so if we're conservative, we might look at the tenants and say, oh, these tenants, they're just lazy. And if we're more liberal, we might look at the landlords and say, oh, these landlords are just greedy. 
But I think you spend five minutes, you know, on the ground and you realize really quickly that uh, the situation is a lot more complex than that. And I thought that it was my job to write about the landlords with as much complexity and humanity as I as I did their tenants. And so, you know, the book has come out a couple years ago and I've been all around the country talking about it. And a lot of folks come up to me and they say, you know, I, I don't know what I f- how I feel about Sharina. You know, and Sharina, mm. of course, is the main landlord in the book. And she... Um, she delivers tenants' groceries. She negotiates with them. She gives them breaks. She evicts a tenant, you know, right before Christmas. Um, she refuses to uh, fix basic housing needs. You know, she's a very complicated character. And when readers tell me, you know, I don't know what to think of her, I think, okay, I, I did okay there. You know, I kind of wrote a, I wrote a, a complex story because, you know, the world's complex. Yeah, because a real person is not someone who you necessarily know what to think about. Because if you know someone right. intimately, you know their good qualities and their bad qualities. You see them at their best and their worst. And, you know, you have a complex relationship with them. And that's the kind of relationship that you established with her through getting to know her. And then you imparted that to the reader is how it felt. Yeah, She was my landlord, too. And, you know, I think she was proud of her work. You know, and when I met Sharina, she had been a landlord for only four years. Before that, she was a school teacher at a public public school in Milwaukee. And she built up a, a small real estate empire that gave her family a very comfortable living. You know, and I think she was proud of her work. She was kind of an entrepreneur in that way. And so... I think that, you know, my conceit with the book was that if you write about people's lives um, and you write about them honestly and with complexity, that is a chance to move the, move the needle. And so yeah. when I go to Washington and, you know, when I testify in front of Congress or I meet with lawmakers, I, I, I bring statistics, you know, I do, but uh, I mainly tell stories. And I think those stories are the things that we have to keep telling to elevate this issue uh, on the national scene. Yeah. And I'll be honest, I, I want to move on to after this, uh, talking about the issue more directly, but I'm just so fascinated by your process. One of my favorite parts of the book was the author's note at the end where you described how you went about writing it. Um, And I'm just curious if you could speak for a second to, you know, when you're living with the folks who you're writing about for for a couple of years and, you know, creating friendships with them, uh, as you would naturally have to if you're spending that much time with folks, um, but you also know that you are, hey, I'm writing a book here. Uh, what is, uh, what sort of conflicts come up for you and how do you negotiate those? Uh, that's such an interesting process that I'd love to see more of, but I can understand why it's so difficult. Well, one of the things that comes up immediately, right, is, um, these are folks facing incredible adversity. And so they ask for help and they, they don't ask you for help because you're an outsider. They ask everyone for help, you know, I mean, they need help. And so, um, There are times in the work where I I said yes. There are times where I said no. You know, when you say yes to a big ask, um, you can't write about that, you know, in a way. It kind of um, contaminates what's happening in a way. Right. And so, if you uh, you cover someone's rent for a month, then that really changes the situation that you're writing about. Exactly. Yeah. But there are times when it's like, man, what are you going to do? You know, and so I remember this one time when. Uh, Vanetta, uh, she was a homeless woman that I met. Um, she had these three young kids. She was such a good mom, like an amazing mom. You know, organized Easter egg hunts in the homeless shelter for her little kids. She kept looking and looking and looking for housing, and finally she found she found an apartment. And um, she called me after that, and uh, she was just she was crying. She was really upset, and this was not like her. She's a very kind of stoic, you know, holds it together kind of person. 
And she had got into an argument with a neighbor, and the neighbor had reported her for to child protective services mm. and on the basis that there was no refrigerator or stove in the house. You know, she she found an apartment, but she still had to save up to get those two things. And so she was she was really scared. And so um, she asked if I could lend her money, you know, um, for those for those appliances, and I did, and she ended up paying me back. So there are times that that, where that happens, you know, where the moral imperative just kind of you you put your pin down and you just kind of intervene. And, um, you know, I'm a sociologist, right? I work at a university. And so there's this idea in the university where you have to have objectivity to write mm. about people's lives and you have to have distance. And I actually think we have a lot of distance, actually. Distance isn't the problem. <laughs> right. You know, I think like you can fall in love with people, you can become their friends, you can you can care about their kids deeply, and you can write about them honestly. Yeah. And I think that, um, I think the book tries to do that. And so, you know, I'm still in touch with a lot of folks in Milwaukee. We call and text all the time. Uh, I know about their kids. Um, we've started a little foundation to share proceeds from the book with them and have been able to kind of intervene wow. in their lives through that way as well. Another thing that comes up, right, is like people have an interesting relationship with the book that they're in. And so one of the main folks that I wrote about is Arlene. And, mm -hmm. you know, when the book first came out, uh, she felt a little... I, you know, like, gosh, you know, there's a lot of details in here, right? She told me, I thought this was going to be a book about landlords and tenants. And, you know, it is, but, you know, there's details about her full life in there. Yeah. And um, so she feels a little exposed at first and embarrassed. And we talk through that, you know, and, and what's that's like. And then as she sees the book kind of pick up and she sees readers care not only about the issues, but literally about her. Yeah. You know, going around the country and someone from Louisiana saying, how's Arlene? How's she doing? And I call Arlene that night saying, someone asked about you. What should I tell him? You know, and, um, <laughs> and you know, she, she begins to feel pride, you know, uh, and I think she feels pride around the book and in her story. And so, you know, uh, there's this one time she was in a public library and she saw the book on display. And she went up to the librarian. She said, have you read this book? And the librarian said, yes. And she's like, I'm Arlene. And the librarian like loses it. You know, it's like, <laughs> oh my gosh, you know, it's just amazing. It's like meeting a famous person, you know? Right. And they have this really great conversation. And so that really, that's special. That means a lot to me, you yeah. know, um, that folks in the book kind of see their stories moving the dial and see their stories serving kind of a larger purpose. Yeah. Uh, and let me ask, I, I, by the way, I would also be starstruck if I met Arlene because uh, you, right, you know, right. you, as a reader, you develop the, these close relationships with these, with these right. folks and you, and you really, I mean, your writing really helps us to, to care about them and more importantly, helps you see the world from their perspective. Because so often when we're talking about these issues, we're talking about them, you know, in the abstract or from our own points of view. And we only see, you know, the little uh, slice or we see the abstractification um, of, of, uh, of these folks. And so uh, my next question is, uh, what do you felt that you learned about the reality of housing insecurity and poverty in America from reporting on the book in this way? Uh, what perspective did it give you that you felt that you couldn't have gotten otherwise? Well, one thing is just how relentless uh, the rent is, you yeah. know, and how much of a force it is in the lives of uh, struggling families, you know, and so... I knew that eviction was a problem when I started, but I had no idea how big of a problem it was. You know, like in the inner city of Milwaukee, one in 14 homes 
are evicted every year. So what's that wow. mean? That means you walk down any street in the inner city of Milwaukee and you look to your left and your right, one of those homes is gone by the end of the year. An incredible amount of instability. And then following people who have been evicted and conducting all the statistical work on it too, it's, you know, you come to this really clear realization that, oh, eviction isn't just a condition of poverty, it's a cause of poverty, right? It's making things worse. It's yeah. pushing people into worse housing and the worse neighborhoods. Uh, people have an eviction on their record that follows them around. They can't get public housing because of that. That can affect their credit. A lot of people lose their jobs, you know? Um, and if your listeners have been evicted, they know exactly why this is. It's just like so consuming and stressful. It can cause you to make mistakes at work and lose your footing in the labor market. And then there's health effects, mental health effects. You know, Arlene once said, you know, I feel like I got a curse on me, you know, like it won't stop for nothing. And that's the idea. You know, we published a study that shows that, you know, moms who get evicted experience high rates of depression two years after it happens. You know, it really wow. stays with you. Yeah. And so, um, so, you know, it's fundamental to understanding what it's like to be a struggling family in America today. And I think that, you know, a lot of Americans, you ask them, where do poor folks live? Uh, they say they live in public housing. You know, and there's this idea that most poor people live in subsidized housing and they get help paying the rent. Mm. But the opposite's true, right? Only about one in four families who qualify for any kind of public housing, affordable housing assistance, only about one in four of those families receive help. And the unlucky majority receive nothing. And I think the stories in Evicted are about what that's like to be part of that unlucky majority. Right. I mean, I don't know people who believe that uh, folks are living in public housing. I'm not sure what public housing they're talking about because it's the, so little has been constructed uh, in, right. in recent years. It was like a trend that grew and then and then died. Uh, so we, like, we, like we murdered it. Yeah. Right? It's kind of like we defunded so much of it. Like Reagan cut HUD's budget, the Department of Housing and Urban Development, Reagan cut the budget by 60%. Wow. You know, so you cut anything by 60%, it's going to die. Yeah. You cut the military by 60%, you know, <laughs> we're going to have some problems. And so I think there's this idea, right, that public housing was like inherently bad, right? And that we failed, but we, we murdered it. We killed yeah. it. And it was, and it was, uh, it, it also died because of the, the d sort of focused disparagement that was put on the very idea. It was almost a, a campaign of, of sort of slandering the very idea, right? That, right. Uh, I mean, obviously I'm sure we, you know, we could go down a list of public housing schemes that were, uh, less than ideal that were, you know, resulted in, uh, you know, buildings that are poorly designed or, or, right. you know, concentrating populations in ways that exacerbated issues and mm -hmm. that those are mistakes that were made, but uh, it sort of became this overall slander of the very idea of building housing for uh, folks who need it. Right. You know, and so there used to be a time in America where this is how the federal budget was. It was Department of Defense, number one spending item, then housing, number two. Wow. There was this big investment in housing from the federal government. And most of the public housing that was built, like, you know, early 20th century, mid-century, was for white families. Mm. You know, public housing for white families. And when public housing started to be coded or viewed as a benefit for African-American families— that's when that story started happening. That's ah. when the disparagement started happening. And that's when we called, um, uh, we started cutting the budget and calling public housing a failure and then dynamiting it, you know, not too long after erecting these tall buildings. So, you know, you're right. It was, it was such an imperfect uh, policy. And we did a lot of things wrong. Um, but for a lot of folks like Arlene, Vanetta, Scott, the folks that I wrote about in the book, you know, you ask them, what's the number one issue? You know, what's your number one issue? And I think they'd say, you know, look, I'm paying 80% of my income to rent. 
Yeah. You know, um, can you, can you, can you throw me a bone here? And so, you know, poverty is complicated, you know, but you know, a stable, affordable home is this amazing foundation on which to give people like Arlene a shot at realizing their full potential. And we have so much less focus on that. I mean, I think when, you know, for folks who are, uh, you know, folks of affluent means who are, you know, volunteering time or money to uh, help the less fortunate, you know, they're thinking, okay, food drives, uh, bring some cans down, put them in the box or donate a hundred bucks, you know, to the, to the food pantry. But no people, no one's spending 80% of their income on food. (laughs) You know I mean? Food is an issue. um, And, you know, one that we can talk about, uh, but 80% of your income on housing, um, um, you know, food and housing are both equally necessary things to live. Uh, and uh, only one of those is has such a constricted supply. We've got tons of, we need healthier food. We need, you know, more available food. But uh, housing is is clearly the one that has the, uh, we're in the worst situation with, but that we are proportionally spending. There's no national conversation about, about the housing crisis in America. That's what really shocks me. No presidential candidate has ever run on the housing crisis. Um, it doesn't right. come up. Right, right, right. And so I think that, you know, food is a right in this country. You know, we have a right to access to decent, uh, nutritious food. You know, uh, kids do not get turned away. Uh, for free and reduced lunches and breakfasts at our schools. Uh, if you need help paying the grocery bill, uh, you have access to help. Uh, but housing, no such no such access. And the waiting list for public housing in some of our biggest cities now, it's not counted in years, it's counted in decades, right? So like, yeah. I've got two young kids now. You know, if I applied for public housing today, like in LA or in Washington, D.C., Chances are I'd be a grandpa by the time my application came up for review. Right. So that's our housing situation. So I think that we do need to start having a conversation as a country that asks, is housing a right? Like food is. Is housing a right? Yeah. You know, Canada just asked that question. They passed this incredible uh, suite of bills uh, two years ago that established a right to housing in Canada. I read a lot of books. I know you do too. But the, <laughs> the, like the coolest thing I've read in years is the Canadian uh, housing plan. It's mm. amazing. It's inspiring. You know, it's about helping kids. It's about addressing gender inequality, uh, indigenous rights issues, uh, issues that disproportionately affect the gay community, the working class uh, community. So it's just you know, it's it was incredible, inspiring, and beautiful, and we can think about that having that conversation too. And I agree with you that housing has been getting the short shrift in the political debate. Yeah. And I hope that changes 2020. Yeah. You know, I love it when Elizabeth Warren goes to the town hall meeting, starts saying, "Yes, I do think housing is a right." I love it when I see uh, Senator Harris or Senator Booker uh, put out these housing bills that say, "Hey." You know, homeowners get a, a tax benefit just because they own a home, but renters are left out of that. Can we balance the scales a little bit? Yeah. I hope that we see housing rise to the, the top of the domestic agenda in 2020. I, I completely agree. Um, but because in the meantime, because we're not providing public housing, we're not providing any any recourse to uh, folks who need housing, they're sort of forced to uh, find what housing they can in uh, this sort of very rapacious 
private market that's, uh, and, and look, here's, here's the thing I found sort of most shocking about your book. You know, I, uh, you know, in my early twenties, I was, you know, living in New York. I was trying to find an apartment. It was difficult to find an apartment. I had to pay too much money to a broker. You know, my, I couldn't get my landlord to fix things. I was like, Hey, this is pretty rough. I think I've, I think I've had a pretty rough time of it. You know, I think I know what life in the city is like. Um, the market that the folks that you write about are in, is one that I did not really realize existed in America for, through a lack of my own experience until I read about it. Um, and this sort of gets back to what I was talking about in the intro that, you know, our idea of poverty is, hey, you can pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Uh, there's a lot that you can, you know, hey, just work a little bit harder. But it's not until you realize the situation of the folks who are actually, you know, that you're speaking to um, that you realize how, how difficult that is um, because you know, the view that your book gives of that market and that life is so stark. These, these folks are essentially, um, uh, you know, going from apartment to apartment that are in terrible disrepair, that uh, have plumbing that doesn't work, have sinks that are backed up with garbage where, you know, they have to, uh, they have no recourse to get any of it fixed. They're likely to be evicted every six months or so, um, or they're, they're constantly living under threat of eviction. And uh, something that I didn't even realize existed uh, is, and I'm very sorry for paraphrasing your own work to you, by the way. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, this is great. Yeah. Uh, but um, there's this pattern where uh, the a tenant will be evicted through uh, no fault of their own. A, a family member or someone who you know lives nearby will will you know uh, uh, have a get into an argument with someone, um, and the landlord says, "Well, now there's too much trouble. I'm kicking you out." Right. Um, and that, evict that, that eviction, you touched on this earlier, goes on their record. They actually have a record right. of evictions, um, right. which is uh, which then follows them around. It makes it harder for them to get an apartment, which is stunning to me because this is not a crime that's been committed. This is not, right. you know, this is not a felony conviction that's being held at the courthouse or whatever, but it's still on their record and affects their uh, uh, their life going down the line um, as though they had committed a crime. Um, and that was a system that I did not even realize existed. And once you're, you know, once you're tussling with that, it, uh, that only multiplies how, how difficult it is to put your life back together after you've been evicted. Right. And, you know, wrapped around that is the idea of like, what's eviction court like? So, you know, if you get arrested in this country, you have a right to an attorney. You know, public defense is far from perfect, but there is a public defense. Yeah. There's no such public defense in civil court, right? So if you uh, have an eviction notice facing you, you have no right to an attorney. And most folks that get an eviction notice don't show up to court. And, you know, I have a PhD. I wouldn't show up to court if I had to face off with a, a landlord attorney. Yeah. You know? And so a lot of folks don't want to deal with that embarrassment and hassle, and, and they just leave. And, um, and when you do show up, yeah, it's basically an eviction processing plant. You know, in Charlotte, North Carolina, the eviction court commissioners have uh, 100 cases to process an hour because they know that most folks won't show up. You know, wow. just boom, 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 default evictions. That, that's you know, that's almost to a minute. That's right. Yeah, that's right. And, um, and you know, a lot of these uh, tenants that do show up, they're making deals in back hallways with landlord attorneys. Um, the scales are just so imbalanced. And so, you know, if eviction court look like the courts on TV, right, where there's 
are, you know, lawyers on both sides arguing with each other and, you know, some settlement is reached and kind of a fair hearing has been had, then you can kind of say, okay, we should have a record of this. But what eviction records are is basically records of this very unfair, unbalanced process. And I think we should ask ourselves, to what extent should they be easily accessible? And states have started asking that. So uh, California is a leader here. I think California automatically seals all eviction cases so they can't follow you around. Okay. Uh, I, th- I think uh, Oregon and uh, Washington are considering uh, bills to do exactly this too. And, you know, this is a free fix. You know, you don't need to spend any money on this fix. And there are things that uh, cities can do looking deep inside their court systems to ask, like, how the, can the court system be rearranged yeah. uh, to make life a little better for families facing homelessness? But uh, reading the account really made it clear how homelessness happens. Um, right. uh, because uh, what you describe is, you know, someone is evicted uh, for any number of reasons. Um, but then once they have that eviction on their record, it becomes much more difficult for them to find another apartment because every apartment says, uh, you know, hey, no, uh, I'm not right. going to let you in if you have an eviction on your record. Um, and so you describe, uh, you know, the folks who write about spend upwards of a month searching for a single room that will take them in the city in which they live. Not that they can right. afford, just that will agree to let them stay there at all. Um, right. And then, of course, once they do, it's it's hideously expensive and, and takes all of their money. Um, and uh, you're, you're reading this going, my God, if this person doesn't find the single ray of light, they're going to be on the street tomorrow. Right. And remember, this book is about Milwaukee, right? Yeah. It's not about New York City or San Francisco that have these vacancy rates, you know, uh, in the single digits. This is a slack city, slack market city. There's plenty of housing, but there's a lot of landlords that say no. And I met landlords that said, like, look, even if this person has a dismissed eviction on their record, you know that something happened and I'm going to say no. So, you know, Arlene, I remember uh, spending time with her after an eviction and she had to she had to ask or apply to 89 places before someone said yes, you know, over and over and over again. I counted. It's exhausting. And so to go back to your point about bootstraps, I mean, gosh, she is working hard. You know, Uh, she's she's working her tail off trying to find just any kind of house that will take her and her two kids. And you would add that up to the fact that she's an African-American woman and is facing racial discrimination and she has kids and she's facing family discrimination, you know, you see the kind of uh, the way it's stacked against her. And then, you know, to your point about, you know, why is she moving into a place she can't afford? And the answer is uh, there's not that much cheaper housing in the city. She's living in a place she can't afford at the very bottom of the market. And it's funny because this like grinds against how we kind of think cities work. We think like, oh, folks like Arlene live in these poor neighborhoods because that's all she can afford. But those poor neighborhoods aren't that much cheaper than like other neighborhoods across the city. And it's funny because when you read like urban history, you realize like, oh, it's been like this forever. Mm. Like if you read like How the Other Half Lives, Jacob Reese, you know, famous muckraking journalism, 1899 about New York City tenements. Yeah. You're like, oh, the, the folks that are living in these tenements, these slum, terrible places, babies are getting tuberculosis. You know, people living in the worst housing in the city are paying more money than better housing uptown. So it's not just a a financial arithmetic. It's that there are places in the city where folks like Arlene are allowed to be until they're kind of like inevitably evicted. Right. And, and, you know, she, when you say she's working hard, she is working as hard as anybody 
works at anything, but the thing that she is working hard to achieve is the basic necessity of a place to live. <laughs> right, well, like right. I, I'm working really hard right. on my, you know, uh, new season of TV that's coming out, right? right. And maybe we're right. working the same number of hours, but right. you know, I don't have to do that just to have a roof over my head. Not to mention food or income, uh, which are, you know, you need a roof over your head in order to <laughs> sleep so you can go to work. You can't, you can't work if you don't have a place to live. Exactly. And so any kind of policy to spur mobility, to give kids a shot at, uh, at reaching their full potential in school, to reduce crime, to tackle healthcare costs, like whatever our, our issue is, whatever keeps us up at night, the lack of affordable housing is somewhere at the root of that issue. And when you read stories like Arlene's or Vanetta's or Scott's, you know, you realize how much like human potential and beauty and like yeah. intelligence is just like squandered, right? Because yeah. we asked those folks to spend so much of theirs just trying to figure out how they're going to make rent from one month to the next. Right. L let me ask, just because you brought up Jacob, Re Jacob Rees and, the, and that period in the late 19th, early 20th century, um, I've read some accounts of that as well in sort of the history of New York, the the tenements that, you know, there was an awareness at the at the time in the city that, hey, this is, this is untenable as a situation, that we've got block after block of people living in the worst conditions, you know, um, and something needs right. to be done. And my understanding is it's that awareness that sort of eventually led to the first public housing that, that we, you know, people, God damn it, people just need roofs over their heads and the government just has to build a lot of fucking units, right? Um, right. Uh, that it was, you know, every problem in, you know, uh, often it seems the only problems, the only way problems get solved in a place like New York City is when it's so bad that, you know, uh, people on the Upper West Side notice too um, and say, my God, we just have to uh, give people a place to live. Um, do you feel that we're anywhere close to that sort of awareness happening or, or that sort of change occurring? It's it so seems that right? bad it's again. Like it seems that bad again. Yeah, yeah, it's it's interesting because it's it's often change feels very far away until it's not, right? Yeah. And so I think that we're seeing two things happening. One, we're seeing the problem spread and touch folks that didn't have to think about this problem in the 90s, you know? So uh, parents of adult kids, right? Uh, that matters to them because their kid who got a good job in New York City can't afford, you know, apartment. Right. Rent. Yeah, they're and, living with you know, six. They're living with six roommates in. That's uh, right. in, in a closet in uh, a terrible apartment. Yeah. That's right. Or or they're living with their parents, right? Yeah. And you know the media tells us, oh, this generation doesn't want to move out of their parents. This generation can't move out of their parents' basement. <laughs> you know, right. and so it's reaching those folks. You know, I went to um, I was in a meeting in Pittsburgh a few years ago, and it's it was with housers. You know, so the usual suspects are there. You know, tenants, landlords. And then there's public sector unions there, you know, teachers, firefighters. And I was like, what are you guys doing here? You know, and they're like, well, we can't afford to live in this city anymore. So this is an issue for us, you know. And yeah. um, you talk to pediatricians, you know, you learn that like the top 5% of hospital users consume about half of all healthcare costs. Yeah. So, gosh, wow, who are they? Well, they're people like Arlene who are unstably housed but have severe medical conditions. Yeah. So I think that we as a country, more of us, are waking up to this problem that a lot of folks below the poverty line have known for a long, long time. So I think that's what's happening. And then I think the other thing that, that moves the dial is when communities organize. And I do think we see this resurgence these days of, of a renter's mobilization, you know, the yeah. right to the city, tenants groups. I think that those groups are getting organized. They're, they're uh, gaining members. 
They're gaining a platform, and they should be taken very seriously. And so I think that we're seeing that as well all, all around the country. Yeah, I've noticed even here in Los Angeles, local politics are, are a lot more about housing issues uh, than, uh, well, you know, I haven't lived here that long, so I can't say what they were about 10 years ago, but, I, <laughs> but I've noticed a lot of, uh, you know, in, in local politics, uh, folks talking about, hey, the impact of Proposition 13, which is, uh, right. you know, a, a tax bill here in Los, uh, you know. Insane. It's, it's insane. It's, I, I don't know. Yeah. I, I got to figure out how to do an episode on this uh, because <laughs> it's should. one of the most shocking facts, but it's only about one state and we've never done it. Yeah. anything on our show that's only about one state. But basically, uh, we have in California a proposition that was passed in the 70s that's essentially rent control for homeowners, where where right. if you once you buy a house, your property taxes can never go up. And so right. people stay in their houses for 50 years and pay shockingly low. You're paying like 50 cents a year in property taxes uh, to the local school where people, uh, it's it, it insanely uh, privileges and prioritizes uh, uh, homeowners rather than renters. And it's a big conversation. Uh, it's a big part of the conversation of why is uh, housing so expensive in California? And it's been a total sacred cow in California politics for over 40 years. And now uh, it is finally something that's being talked about again. Uh, it's, you feel it bubbling up. Hey, this needs to be reexamined. Um, and and it, it feels like maybe something is starting. See, this is. I feel like this is this is a national story too, because this is the crux of the matter. About a lot of folks that call themselves progressives, get a bit of catch in their voice when it comes to sacrificing something off their plate. Yeah, you know, and that's. I think that's the crux of it. And so, you know, if we come to like, okay, we need to fix the housing crisis. How can we do that? Well, we can expand housing voucher program. We can build more affordable housing. We can incentivize affordable housing development in new ways. Those things cost money, right? So where's the money going to come from? Well, one place it could come from is homeowner tax subsidies, right? right? So every year we spend way, way more on homeowner tax subsidies, like the mortgage interest deduction, than we do on direct housing assistance to the needy. Like we already have like a universal housing program in America, universal entitlement program. It's just not for poor people. Yeah, it's the, so it's the mortgage deduction. That's right. Nancy Pelosi refers to it as a middle-class deduction. Yeah. And this is where the politics get really tricky because a lot of our, the democratic leadership are in high cost uh, uh, cities. Yeah. And so in New York, in San Francisco, in LA, and where the mortgage introduction is kind of a middle class benefit. But in most areas of the country, it's not. You know, most families who claim the mortgage introduction uh, are families who have six figure incomes. Right. Uh, most white families own, own a home in America, right, and are eligible for one of the sweetest deals in the tax code. Most black and Latino families, because of our history of racial discrimination, don't. Yeah, and redlining, you know, and so, yeah. Right, right. And so. It's just really hard to think like what's a social policy that does a better job of amplifying our racial and economic inequality than our housing policy does. And so I feel like Prop 13, the mortgage interest deduction, homeowner tax subsidies, they're all about this. You know, like if we aren't willing to give up a little bit, to sacrifice a little bit, um, do we get to call ourselves progressives? Well, on that note, I want to take a short break. We'll be right back with more Matthew Desmond.
All right, we are back with Matthew Desmond. Uh, I want to pivot to uh, talking about poverty more generally. You had a wonderful piece in the New York Times that I quoted at the top of the show uh, about the physical effect that poverty has on those who are living under it and on the physical effect that higher wages can have for them. Uh, Can you uh, elaborate on that a little bit, please? Yeah. So, you know, minimum wage debates, right? So for the last 50 years, the minimum wage debates have been all about the labor market, right? Like, is it going to drive up unemployment? You know, is it going to drive up prices? Is it going to cause employers to cut your hours back? And, you know, those are really important questions. But what a lot of folks just weren't asking was just like, okay, if you're a worker and you go from making $9 an hour to like 15 or 13 to 15, like, how does that affect your life? Yeah. And so, you know, recently there's been this small kind of resurgence of public health workers and health economists that have been asking that question. And what they're finding is that even pretty small, modest increases to your wage can make a world of difference in your body, on your health. Yeah. You know, uh, there's studies that show that uh, it decreases smoking, massive effects on smoking. And so, like, one economist I talked to said, when are you going to quit smoking, you know, if you're a student? You know, are you going to quit during finals week? No, right? (laughs) And that's how it is when you're feeling like the stress of a poverty wage, you know, this kind of like you don't have the mental capacity uh, dedicated to kind of uh, kicking that habit. Um, It has been uh, linked to reductions in child neglect. Uh, You know, if you have more money, you can afford to keep the lights on and the fridge stocked. Uh, Decreases in teen pregnancy, increases in... um, exercise and sleep. It just has this massive effect on your your health and well-being. So, I mean, for me, the big take-home is, you know, a $15 an hour wage or a healthy living wage isn't just something that, you know, uh, addresses poverty. It's actually something that kind of saves lives. Yeah. I mean, just the effect of stress on your body of, uh, you know, if you're having to work longer hours or having to stress over not having enough money, you know, if you've got to go, you know, drive for Uber for four hours after you finish work or uh, et cetera. I mean, I've, you know, in my relatively comfortable life, I have experienced uh, stress to the extent that it's made me physically unwell uh, because of the amount of work I've put on myself. And that's something that I've had to manage. And again, I live an affluent, comfortable life. Um, If you are, you know, uh, facing that while you are food insecure, housing insecure, I can only imagine the toll that, um, that it would take on your body and the uh, positive effect that it could have to uh, have any sort of physical relief from that. Right. And that, I mean, one of the folks I talked to for that story, he was working two full-time jobs. So he'd work eight-hour shift at McDonald's, he'd have a two-hour break, and he'd put another eight-hour shift in with a Tim company. And it just took this massive toll on his body. And he told me the story about one day when he was walking through the grocery store, he just fainted from exhaustion, passed out. He's 24 years old. Wow. And so, you know, the idea of working your way out of poverty, you know, really just being able to put in the hours to, to get ahead, for a lot of Americans... Um, they're they're putting in the hours. They're often working double what what a lot of us are working, and they're not getting ahead. About a third of the American workforce works for fifteen dollars an hour or less today. So there's so many of our neighbors and folks we're coming in contact with that are working, 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 and are just kind of uh, keeping their head above water. Yeah. One thing that we have touched on on Adam Ruins Everything is that um, it's expensive to be poor, that you literally right. have to spend more on 
daily necessities. Uh, and because, you know, for just the simple example being like, hey, if you've got less dollars in your pocket, you can't buy the in bulk toilet paper or the, you know, uh, et cetera. Uh, you've got to buy the single, right? Uh, because mm. you don't have 10 bucks, you only have five bucks. So you need to buy a single roll of toilet paper and uh, it costs more per unit, right? Um, you mm. literally end up spending more money. Um, but there are so many other ways in which uh, having being so strapped for money can lead you, can force you to make those choices that you get criticized for making where people say, oh, well, poor people are just making bad choices. They could make, they could choose better things. You know, it's their fault for smoking, right? It's their fault for spending money in a way I deem extravagant when really it's the condition of poverty that, that leads you or forces you to make that choice. Right. And so one of my brilliant colleagues here at Princeton, Eldar Shafir, is a psychologist. And he's done all the experiments to show how poverty taxes the mind, literally taxes the mind. And there are experiments like this. You know, you and I would go into a room and you, know, you would be uh, asked to uh, memorize a two-digit number, you know, 5-7. And I'd be asked to m memorize a seven-digit number, you know, 5-7-2-1-2-3-7-9. And we would be led into a waiting room and sat down on a couch and in front of us are snacks, right? Mm -hmm. And there's a chocolate cake and there's fruit. The better decision is to eat the fruit, right? Yes. But the folks that get the long number are like 50% more likely to eat the cake because so much of our brain is just focused on what's that number, what's that number, that we lose the kind of capacity to resist, you know, making the kind of impulsive worst choice. And that's how poverty is. Right. You know, when your brain is focused on how am I going to pay that bill? Gosh, my kid, uh, you know, uh, my kid's got a court date today or, you know, um, God, there was shooting on my block last week. I wonder what happened. You know, when your brain is just taxed with the, the relentless, exhausting questions of poverty, um, it can make you uh, make worse decisions. Yeah. So folks aren't poor just because they make worse decisions. They make worse decisions because they're poor. Yeah. And the clear policy implication is like, if you raise people's standards of living, you'll see returns on what they do with their behavior. And we see things like this in the Earned Income Tax Credit, for example. So Earned Income Tax Credit, big program, comes out once a year in February, mostly to working parents who are just around the poverty line. So when folks get this kind of injection of cash, you know, it could be like $1,500, $2,500, what do they do with it? A lot of them pay off debt and save, you know, invest in their kids. You know, we see really great returns on that kind of thing because we stabilize and relieve that stress and we kind of expand their bandwidth tag, you know, their bandwidth that they have to make those decisions. Yeah. So, you know, uh, I wrestled with this when I was working on Evicted. You know, there's a chapter in Evicted called Lobster on Food Stamps. I and, remember And, you know, it's about my neighbor Lorraine uh, in the trailer park. And uh, to celebrate an anniversary she had with a, a deceased boyfriend, she, uh, she took her entire allotment of food stamps and she bought, you know, lobster, king crab, lemon meringue pie, Pepsi, you know, and, and she ate it all in one setting. You know, it was a very special dinner for her, expensive yeah. dinner. And so, you know, when I learned about that, I was pissed off, you know? I was, I was <laughs> incensed. I was like, Lorraine, what are you doing, Lorraine? Like, how can you, do, you know, what are you thinking? Yeah. And she was so um, expecting that kind of response from me, you know? She was ready for that kind of response, and she didn't apologize. And she said, I wanted to have a special occasion. And, um, you know, it was my way of, she kind of prompted me to think like, your job isn't to apologize for me. Your job is to understand this. And so, you know, Lorraine was, you know, 
grandma receiving social security income. She uh, was living in a trailer that the city considered an environmental biohazard. And if she saved like a third of her income, right? She would have enough money at the end, which would be a huge lift. How many of us save a third of our income? Right. You know, if she did that, she would have enough money at the end of the year to buy like a bicycle. (laughs) Right. And that would come with like, you know, she'd have to skip prescription drugs and food and clothes and hot water. Yeah. And so when there's so much space between where Lorraine is and just like stable poverty, you know, like, what do you do? Do you pinch every penny? Like, no, because it wouldn't matter. You try to live a little bit. You know, and so I think like Lorraine is not poor because she does stuff like that. And she paid the price for it. You know, sometimes she went hungry that month and went to food pantries. But she does things like that. She did things like that precisely because of her social situation. Right. And I think that, you know, a lot of readers, a lot more readers ask about that moment with Lorraine. than they ask about this moment with Sharina when she just spent uh, a lot of uh, people's rent monies at a casino. Yeah. You know, it was kind of like we were more outraged by Lorraine's kind of humble solo act than we are with Sharina, who is literally taking most money out of people's pockets and gambling in a way. And that, I mean, I think that raises a moral question for us, too. Exactly. That's exactly the point that that I was about to make, that we none of us make good decisions all the time, right? Like I'll blow money on shitty food, you know, I'll, I'll, you know, I used to smoke and drink right in my life and spend, you know, when, when I was in my, you know, my, my leanest years of my life, you know, right after college, before I had found, you know, stable work. Right. And, and, and that was my, you know, limited two year experience in my entire life dealing with, you know, having to manage money in that way. And of course I had the backup of, of, you know, uh, uh, family and support network who, you know, I had that backstop. Right. Um, and in those years I, you know, uh, bought alcohol and cigarettes and, and didn't necessarily manage money well, um, because that's part of what being human is. But I was in a social position where that was not a punished, you know, I was still able to make a life for myself despite doing those things. Right. And B, no one was sitting over my shoulder going, Hey, this is why you're poor. Right. Um, and that's a very bizarre judgment. You know, I, I had a conversation with a friend and we were talking about homelessness in Los Angeles, um, which is uh, a huge issue. And he was saying, well, you know, so many of these people, they don't, they don't want help and, and they keep doing drugs. And, you know, they, they go into one of these, uh, even when they get put in a home, they keep getting drugs, doing drugs and they get kicked out. So that's their own fault. Right. Um, and I, I explained to him, Hey man, you know, actually the best way to treat you know, homelessness we're learning is to uh, put people in supportive housing where we don't monitor what they do, where, hey, if they do drugs, guess what? You don't lose your home because of that. And he says, that doesn't seem fair. And I said, hey, man, you know, you can do drugs in your home, right? Maybe you do. I don't know. The difference between you and these people is you don't get kicked out of your house when when you do it, right? Like you actually have right. that amount of slack. You're not punished for making a single mistake, right? Um, you don't have all of right. society wagging a finger at you. Um, and uh, it's just part of life for you. But we treat it when, you know, for folks who we see as below us on the social ladder as being, hey, I'm allowed to do this, but you are not. And that's fucked up. <laughs> yeah, it's like it's privilege is defined as like the amount of space you need to fall after you make a mistake to land on your backside, right? And wow. a lot of us, there's a lot of space between a mistake and that that ground level. For the poor, that's not. And I think that we just need to be a lot 
we need to be careful about turning poor folks into like uh, moral superhumans, like asking them to be the Mother Teresa uh, at the at the bottom of uh, of our hierarchy, uh, and kind of dangling that kind of moral um, justification out before we provide them kind of meager benefits. It's a real American way of looking at poverty, too. Yeah. Your friend's way, you know, and so, you know, um, you go to you go to France, you go to the Middle East, even, um, you go a lot of places around the in the world, and they look at those homeless folks and they say, "How have my how's my state failed them? How has their family failed them?" You know, uh, but America, we say, "How have they failed?" And um, it's a very, you know, it's it's our way of of looking at this problem, and I think that's one of the reasons, like, why we're the richest democracy with the worst poverty. There's no yeah. other advanced industrial society that has a kind of poverty that we have and the level of poverty we have. And if we kind of subscribe, right, to this individualistic idea of poverty, oh, you know, poverty just, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a moral failing. You know, everyone has equal opportunity in this country. If we subscribe to that, then we have to come to this logical conclusion that our people are made of worse stuff than other people. <laughs> and, and, yeah. and I don't think we, I don't think we believe that. You know, I don't think believe that. That's true. I mean, if we, yeah, if we take our own philosophy literally and then we say, well, but poverty exists, uh, right. then the, the natural conclusion is, well, a very large number of Americans are, are extremely uh, uh, lazy and we're not the most industrious, right. uh, hardworking people on the planet like we think we are. Right. And we don't want to believe that about ourselves. It's true. I don't believe that about, about Americans. Um, right. But it's such a contrast with the story that we tell ourselves. I mean, I mean, you know, I watch uh, a lot of Shark Tank, um, which is funny because <laughs> you do. Yeah, it's contrary. You know, the the what that show puts forward is contrary to so much of uh, what I this conversation that we're having right now. But goddamn it, it's one of the best shows on TV. It's so fucking fun to watch. Uh, I, I can't get enough of it. And but they sell so hard that story, right? Of you know, when they're interviewing the person, tell us your story. Well, I was the child of a single mother and I, you know, grew up in a refrigerator on the sidewalk. And, uh, but I managed to, I found a pair of boots on the street and I put them on and then I pulled them up. I pulled on the bootstrap so hard that, you know, I went to Harvard, uh, but I didn't get a scholarship. I, uh, raised all the money myself by selling lemonade on the street. Uh, that's how I raised the $200,000 to go to Harvard. And then I created my own business and here I am today. And then all the billions go, oh my God, you are our favorite person we've ever met. They applaud mm -hmm. for them. And then they usually say, I'm out, but I love you. <laughs> they usually yeah, right, say, right. we're not actually going to invest right. in your uh, dog walking robot or whatever, uh, but we really love your story. But that story is, it's almost the the Joseph Campbell Ur myth of America uh, in, in it doesn't even feel strange that, that, that they're putting it forward because it's so much this, you know, deep down American story but it's not true right uh the the folks that you write about are working just as hard as that you know not take anything away from the story of the person who's on shark tank if if that story is true but um you know the people you write about work just as hard but they don't get the same results and we never confront why that is shark tank or anything else on television never covers hey here's why you can do that and 99% of the time it actually won't work and here's what we need to change about that yeah, it's like, so I've got kids, right? And so you tell your kids, hey, work hard, you know, put your put your back into it, you know, uh, you'll get ahead. You want to instill these values 
uh, in our kids. These are good values. Yeah. Um, but that's not a theory of life. Right, mm. like that's that's not an, a social explanation, and so it's kind of like the story we've told ourselves to motivate our own selves. So we pour that extra cup of coffee, so we put in the hours. The things we tell our kids when they're excelling in sports or in school is like internalized for an explanation for where we are today, um, which is just wrong. And so I think that you know I think we got to be cautious about that. And the, the thing that's kind of funny to hear when you hear these kind of I've worked hard stories is um, like everyone's social position has gradually gotten better over like a couple generations, right? Like like a couple generations ago, there weren't cell phones, you know, uh, things were like, we have modern conveniences that are better yes. than they were a couple of generations ago. So you could tell yourself like, look, when I was growing up, you know, uh, I had to work this job and I didn't have a car and I didn't have a cell phone. It's like, right. No one did though. <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> and so, um, so the kind of like the just general like trajectory of a society, like more advanced, you know, kind of advancing kind of also allows that story to be told, even if, uh, you didn't start out very low. So like, you know, Donald Trump tells that story, right? Like when I started out, my dad only gave me a million dollar loan and I built my empire from That's that. That's it, just so, a million dollar loan. That's all I had. Right, you know? right. I was basically on food and stamps. So the story is just available to all of us, you know, kind yeah. of no matter where we started. But the interesting thing is I wonder, that makes me wonder if for the for the younger generation, and I mean younger than myself, um, if that story might not flip a bit because yeah. uh, I think so many people, actually I do include myself in the generation. I'm just on the older, the older side of it. Um, you know, grew up in a time of great plenty, you know, the, the pre nine 11 years being uh, obviously lots of problems, but you know, uh, sort of the halcyon days uh, for the American economy to a certain extent. And people are now uh, it is the, the trend of everyone doing better than their parents is, seemingly ending um, that I, I forget the exact figures, but I've, but I've read them that it is now much less likely that you'll do better than your parents. That's and, true. and it, it, I think we may, I wonder if we'll see a generation of people saying, Hey, I'm, I'm 35 and, or, you know, I'm 30. And when I would, when my parents were 30, they, they owned a house that I lived in and now I can't <laughs> right. find work. And, right. You know, I, I've, I guess I've heard people put that on themselves. Oh, I'm such a fuck up that this is true about me. But I, mm. I wonder if we're starting to see a, a consciousness change that, uh, you know, it's there's a problem with the way that we've organized our economy and our society uh, that has caused that. Um, and that, I don't know, hopefully might lead to some social change. And we've been in positions like this before. Right. Mm. And so after World War Two, right, um, folks came back and there was a new deal. And, you know, there was a GI Bill. And it's hard for us to get our heads around, like, the size of the GI Bill. It was enormous. You know, it took something like 15% of the federal budget. It was huge. And, you know, it built the American middle class, mostly the American white middle class, because right. black and Latino veterans were kind of cut out of the benefits. But, you know, a couple of years after World War II, about 40% of all mortgages in America were veteran mortgages. You know, yeah. this thing kind of powered homeownership and it powered security. And I think that a lot of young folks seem to be drawn to political arguments and, uh, and our policymakers who are thinking on those scales. You know, and, uh, you know, when I started working on poverty, it was kind of about how to improve existing policies, you know, uh, what works, what doesn't. And now the students I'm teaching are like, what about the universal basic income? 
Yeah. What do you think about that? What do you think about Medicaid for all? What do you think about that? These are scale. They're thinking on a different scale yeah. than we thought about just a few years ago. Yeah. Well, and the, oh man, that's such a good point about the uh, about the GI Bill as well because that prosperity is was you know to use a negative way of putting it was was the result of a massive government handout that it was it, it in a in a, that had really positive results and I think about my own family benefited from that you know my grandfather was a was a World War II veteran and right. and the stability that my mother had um, came from the the stability that was given to him. And then when I look at his grandkids, right, when I look at the span of my family, uh, not every, th- that stability is not there. Um, that, that the, uh, you know, that was a, something that his generation got that we all benefited from that we have not had it to the same degree that we haven't supported the middle class. We have not had the active programs that created that middle class for over a generation now, and and we're seeing uh, we're seeing the resulting fallout of that, perhaps. And it's been an unnecessary fallout, you yeah. know, because it hasn't because of our economy is slowed. We haven't been in an economic slump. Our economy has been doing awesome. You know, there's been this amazing rise of productivity uh, throughout the last 50 years. Uh, but that productivity hasn't translated into broader social uplift. It hasn't even translated into broader social uplift for most American workers, not just for you know low-income communities or folks that don't go to college. A lot of folks that do go to college, uh, even go to like a graduate school and get advanced degrees, are left out yeah. of this bargain. Most of that is really going to the top five percent, especially the top one percent of income earners. And so I think it raises like huge questions for us. And I loved your point about your grandfather and your mom, you know, because it shows like these things are still felt today. You know, they're not too long ago. And so, you know, most folks who buy a home today get help um, with that home from their parents. And a lot of those parents get help by refinancing their own home. And a lot of that is because their grandparents who benefited from the GI Bill refinanced theirs. Right. And so, you know, you know, these kind of like generational advantages that we accrue need to be part of the situation. Uh, excuse me. These generational advantages, uh, some of us accrue and some of us don't, need to be part of this conversation too. Yeah, absolutely. And and I don't mean to imply that everyone in America was received totally, that right. advantage no, yeah, he, from yeah. that my grandfather did, right? Um, yeah. Uh, but it's interesting to see how it's almost a it's you know it's a ripple right it's a ripple that travels through our generations it's a ripple that's that's right. dis, that's dissipating um, to a certain extent because you know my uh, right. his grandkids don't have that uh, that GI Bill mortgage right, right. they they've right, got exactly. it they've got the advantage that their parents are passing on to them but it's you know it's dissipating slightly right, um, right. Um, so uh, I'd like to end on on this sort of thought um, when we're contrasting this true story with the shark tank story right, of America right. uh, with the individual, uh, you know, pulling himself up by his bootstrap story. The thing that always strikes me and the thing that makes me concerned as a, even just television content creator, right? When I'm watching, you know, we have an episode coming out uh, uh, in 2019 uh, for folks who are listening. Maybe you've already seen the episode uh, if you're listening to it far enough in the future. Um, but, it's about this issue. It's about the uh, it's about the myth of the American dream um, and uh, the idea that anyone can make it if they just work hard enough. Um, and we told that story uh, as well as we could in the time that we had allotted. Um, but when I, you know, and I'm proud of that segment, but when I go and watch Shark Tank on a Friday night, I'm like, man, 
that story is better. Maybe it's fun. Mm. I li- that's why I watch Shark Tank. Is I like that story. It is fun to watch. It's moving, right? We know the beats. It feels great. We all want to believe of ourselves that the harder we work, um, that if we if we just work hard enough, we can advance in American society. Um, we want to believe that about America, and we want to believe that about ourselves personally. We don't want to believe that we're uh, uh, the victim of our circumstances, um, and that we you know our possibilities are constrained by where we grew up and and you know where we live and uh, the opportunities available to us. Um, and so I'm often concerned that man, is it possible for the true story to win when the false story is so much more fun and so much more something that we want to believe? Um, and what I love about your work is that I feel that you've really been able to uh, make the truth compelling. Uh, but I wonder how you feel about that obstacle uh, in your own work. So one thing about our American story, our Shark Tank story, is this comfort we get, but also we pay the price for this every day in America. We feel scared, we feel anxious, and we also just are confronted with completely broken systems that more equitable societies don't have. So I remember being in Switzerland last year, and you just get on a train, and it works, it's on time all the time. <laughs> you know, like what? sometimes they check your tickets, sometimes they don't. Yeah. You know, you don't have to go through like a quasi- you know, prison thing to get on the train. <laughs> you have to go through you know, the cheese grater in New York, yeah. Right. And so like this is this is what inequality does to a country, right? It it makes us fearful. It uh it makes us kind of try to like circle the wagons, like clutch on to what we have. Uh, the great sociologist Charles Tilly called it opportunity hoarding, which is a great amazing phrase. Yes. And it it, it causes us to have worse schools and worse roads and a worse criminal justice system and a worse legal system than countries that are more equitable. So it's not just like even if we're at the top or the middle, it's not just like okay, I'm going to be here at the someone else's expense. It's also like being there in America comes with certain cost and fears too, you know? Yeah. Uh, Perhaps the way to change that conversation is to just enlighten folks to the way that that story that we tell ourselves is not helping us, but, but hurting us. And that we, if we can find ways to support each other more than just ourselves, we'll, we'll fare better, I suppose. And there's science behind this, right? Yeah. Folks that are more happy, they're the more generous folks. They feel more agency in their life. And so the more we feel like trapped in these systems, stressed out, thinking we have to work all the time and save, you know, half a million dollars for our kids' college tuition, these kind of things, uh, the less happy we're we're gonna be. Or we could just send everyone to Switzerland. <laughs> I don't I don't wanna do that. I like America. <laughs> I wanna make America better. Right, uh, right. So if the American dream story, the Shark Tank story, is hurting us in that way and making us less happy. What is the alternative story? Like, what is the, I mean, I've read your book and, and I can sort of detect a story in there, but is there a meta myth, you know, that, that alternative that we can describe to people and, and focus on and, and show them that's better than the bad wrong story? Yeah, I, I think that there's a story about a historical reckoning. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a story about uh, sins of our country that we haven't atoned for. 
um, with slavery and racism being the biggest one. Yeah. And um, and I think that so I think there is a story of of accounting. And um, I remember being in Australia a few years ago, and they open every kind of public event with a recognition of whose land they're standing on. Simple, mm. simple thing. But I think it really, it really serves a very heavy kind of symbolic purpose. And so I think, um, I think asking really hard moral questions about that reckoning uh, seems to be on the table. And it's not because we have a personal responsibility. It's like, no, I wasn't there. I get it. But like, it's because we have a civic responsibility. It's like, you know, personal responsibility is about like our connection to the problem. You know, I stole your lunch. I should probably buy you lunch tomorrow. Civic responsibility is our connection to the solution, our power, you know? And so it's like when there's a flood that breaks and the water comes rushing to the city, you don't ask, am I personally responsible for the flood? You're not. Right. But you have a civic responsibility. It's, <laughs> it's, not, it's not the dam, but the sandbag that has your name on it. You know what I mean? And so it's like, so I think that that's one way that we can, we can address this. Um, and the other is, you know, you know, there is something special about being in deep community. And there is something special about um, seeing our government as not just you know an outside force, but something that we all contribute to, right. and that we should all benefit from, and that's okay, you know, and um, and that makes a lot of sense, and that also means like seeing how benefits that we often don't think are from the government, like mortgage interest deduction, um, uh, are, you know, and asking questions about that, I you know, so when I published Evicted, and I went on book tour, I thought I would just be fighting all the time, you know, just like you know, um, kind of talking and retalking about this old story of uh, blame and the undeserving poor. And that just wasn't my experience. You know, it wasn't my experience. And uh, I don't just give talks in Berkeley, California, by the way, too. You know, like I've gone all over the country. Right. And I, I feel that the American public is ready for a different kind of conversation when it yes. comes to inequality. And the American public is ready for something that goes beyond these old tired tropes of working, not working, deserving, non-deserving. We just don't have a narrative for that yet. I completely agree because it's a, these are issues that touch almost everyone, you know, um, or, and, and everyone's, everyone's family, you know, and especially as you said, across the country, um, these are, these are issues that are simultaneously national and local. Um, well, I, I really thank you for doing your part to shift that story and, and you've changed the way I think about these issues. Uh, and it's been an honor to have you. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. Well, thank you once again to Matthew Desmond for coming on the show. I hope you loved that interview as much as I did. Uh, if you did, please leave us a rating or comment wherever you subscribe, Apple Stitcher, whatever podcast app you might use. You can find me on Twitter at Adam Conover and go to adamconover.net for my tour dates and to sign up for my mailing list where you can learn all about the brand new things I got coming up for you. Thank you to our producer, Dana Wickens, our researcher, Sam Roudman, and the party god, Andrew WK, for our theme song, I Don't Know Anything. Check it out on iTunes or or whatever. We'll see you again next week for another episode of Factually. Thank you so much for listening.